0: Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, so we continue through the book of Colossians, we started during the Christmas season as it talks a lot about Jesus and who he is, coming to the earth, becoming a man, to die for us, and so far up to this point it's mostly been about Jesus, who he is. And... That's great. And we do need to know who Jesus is because nothing follows if he's not who he says he is. But we also need to know what he did for us. So who is Jesus? Yes. Then who are we? So this passage we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 is about who we are in relation to who Jesus is. And That's a big question for people. What is your identity? Who are you? You look in the mirror and you say, I am, what do you follow with? Smart? Not smart? Good? Bad? American? What is it? Sometimes you say, I am, and you have good things to say about yourself or about those things that you've done. Many of us look in the mirror and say, I don't like what I see. Bad things. I'm bad. Some of us then look to bigger Groups to identify with, well, I'm not a good person, but at least I'm a part of something. And these sort of groups give you an identity. I may not be smart, but I have a smart family. I didn't do good in school, but my kids did well. I don't make a lot of money, but I make more than they do. I'm not good, but the people I identify with are good. And so we always, everyone has an identity, and everyone looks for it, and everyone needs it. You have to know who you are, or you're adrift, you're lost. You go, you're, we talk about people trying to find themselves. That's what they're doing. It's, It's a joke until it's not a joke. Have you ever had a crisis in your life where it sort of shook you up and you said, I don't know who I am anymore? I was, I was fine, and then this changed relationship, job, health, and now you're, unhinged. You're unmoored. That's what this passage talks about. It gives us the answer. And of course, the answer is not in us. Look in the first words, in him. So we're going to see three things. Who are we? What we have in Christ and how we respond to Christ. So us, what Christ did, and how we respond to that. So verse 11, In Him, that's Christ, in Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In the previous passage, we saw the greatness of Christ and the sort of the Son of God, but now we're going to see the greatness of what Christ did. You see, No one knows Jesus. No one knows God until God comes down and tells us, shows us who he is. Everything other than that is just sort of theory. So what God does in Christ is comes down and he says, let me show you who I am by doing something for you, something that's greater than anyone else could do or has done. So who are we? He talks about circumcision here. Now, unless you're from a Jewish culture, that's not a familiar term. It doesn't mean much to us, just sort of a medical procedure. But what he's talking about here is a mark of identity. We would say something like a uniform. When you see a soldier in the airport, how do you know they're a soldier? You know you see a lot of soldiers, you don't know it. But when they're wearing a uniform, you're like, oh, that's who they are. Well, the uniform didn't make them a soldier but it shows you who, it identifies them with a group. So that's what circumcision was in the Old Testament. It was a way to identify with a group of people. So in the Old Covenant, God came to Israel, God came to Abraham, and said, I want you to be my people, a physical nation that will worship me, that I will take care of. And the way you get into the nation, because that's what you want, Like if God's going to take care of these people, how do you become part of the people? You were circumcised. The males were circumcised and their families followed them. It was a physical act that it created a physical nation. Now, at that time, that seemed to be the best thing out there. A whole nation protected by God. And the only thing you had to do to get in was this physical act. So the Old Covenant was built around circumcision. It was a, a physical act for a physical nation. But if we know anything physical nations are not enough. For one, Israel no longer exists like it used to. And every other nation that has ever been has ceased to be. And this nation will cease to be. And if all God offers us is a physical group of people, when the body dies, the hope dies. When the government crumbles, the hope crumbles. Perhaps God is showing America that the end is coming, maybe a hundred years from now. But the physical nation is not enough. And so what does God say? That's what he's talking about here. In him you are also circumcised. With a circumcision, is he saying now there's another physical act you need to do? Become part of this new nation with Christ? No. With a circumcision made without hands. See, now it's just a symbol. A circumcision made without hands is a spiritual act. It's not a physical act, a spiritual act that creates a spiritual kingdom. Old covenant, physical act of circumcision creates a physical nation. New Testament, new covenant in Christ, something inward has happened. Something invisible has happened, which creates a spiritual inward kingdom. Even in the Old Testament, people understood, or at least God tried to get them to understand, that it wasn't enough just to be in the borders, to just be circum- just be a part of the nation. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses tells Israel, as sort of an introduction to, before they go into the land, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? See, they were already Israel. They are already part of this physical nation. But he's elevating, their, their, he's lifting their eyes up and says, how do you connect with God? Not how do you have a nice place to live, or protected borders, but how do you have a connection with God? And here's what he says. But fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords the great God, mighty and awesome, which shows no partiality nor takes a bride. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. What God is saying here, he's, like, he's saying to Israel, you are now a physical nation, but don't be satisfied with that. Look for something better. And what is it? Obey God, follow God, worship God. Now let me ask you, Do you do those things? Do you serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes? Do you do those things? Israel had the physical, and God is saying, if you want something better, if you want God, you have to do everything right. You have to have a heart that wants to serve God. So even in the Old Testament, it wasn't enough to have a nation. In the new covenant, Christ promises not just a group of people together, but a spiritual connection. In Jeremiah 31, a prophecy is given. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Not like the old covenant that was physical. This is the, new, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. You know what kind of person you had to be to get into Israel? Circumcised. That was it. You didn't even have to love God, you did not have to actually care what God thought, or even know God to be in the nation of Israel. Now, is that what we want? A structure of worshiping God, but individuals who don't? So God promises something better. He says, I'm going to give you a nation where every single person in it knows God. Every single individual from the least to the greatest has a personal connection with God. In the old covenant, that wasn't there. It's a problem with a Christian America. A Christian America can never be a Christian America. It will always have people who don't worship God. Every physical kingdom, every physical group of people will have people in it who don't worship God. They may pretend to, but they don't. What God is offering here with this identity, this circumcision without hands, it brings together people spiritually, each one loving God, each one connected to God a personal connection, no matter who you are in the kingdom. In the old covenant, it would be great to be a priest, to be able to worship God and see the glory of God, to be a king, to be able to commune with God, to be a prophet, to hear God's word. But in the new covenant, every single member has all those things. Every single member is a child of the king. Every single member has the Holy Spirit of prophecy. Every single member is a priest connecting with God. That's who you are. You're not primarily an American. You're not even primarily a man or a woman. You are primarily a Christian. And that's what matters. Your primary self understanding, if you're a believer in Christ, is your relationship to God. Now, here's what's going to happen. Satan is working all the time to introduce to you physical earthly things that make you divided. So the Bible says we're all united in Christ. We're all on the same level, least to greatest. The devil comes along and says, yeah, but some of you are this, and some of you are not this. Look at that. Some Christians act the right way, and some Christians act the wrong way. Some Christians believe this and some don't. Some are from this country and not from that country. Some Christians look this way and others don't. That is Satan coming in and saying the spiritual is not enough. You must also look the same. You must also act the same. The spiritual connection in Christ, your identity with him, the circumcision made without hands, is not enough. We must also have other similarities, but that's the old covenant marked off from the world as Israel and not Israel. The new covenant says, do you have Christ? Yes or no. That's the only division that really matters, but the devil will constantly work to say, you're not like other Christians. You're not like those people at church. Your church is not like those other churches. Now, that works both ways, doesn't it? Some of you probably already feel that. I'm not as good as those other Christians. I don't deserve to be there. And others, you say, I'm better than those. What's wrong with them? Why aren't they like me? You see what Satan's doing? He's saying, stop looking at Jesus and start looking at physical things. Start looking at economic status, national status, physical status. Introduce divisions to undermine the work of Christ. But what do we have in Christ? We say we're in Christ, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, identified with Christ. What does that mean, though? Who does that make us? He gives us three things. First of all, we have life. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him. Did you feel dead before you were a Christian? You must have or you wouldn't have become a Christian. You see, death is more than just stopping the body. It's the undoing and the chaos and the destruction that comes with living in this world. Do you feel your body coming apart at the seams? Do you feel your hopes falling? Do you feel... That drive within you that you can't control, that's death, working, dragging you down. God has freed us from that. He has raised us with him. The old life, you were dead and being drugged down. And the new life, you're raised, you're living, you're growing, you have hope. If you're not a Christian right now, you will not become a good person. You will, get, you will continue to become a worse person. If you're not a Christian right now, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not trusting Christ, there is a corruption inside of you that will grow and grow and grow. And the things that you hate about yourself, you'll either become those things or you'll hide those things, but you won't get rid of them. Non-Christians are dead in sins. There's a principle within them that is dragging them down to hell. Hard work. Discipline will not remove those things. The only thing that will free you from the destruction within you is to be made new, is to be regenerated, is to be transformed. That's what Christ offers. He offers you hope that you may be a bad person right now, but God can change you. You may be struggling with sin. God can get rid of that sin. Nothing else will work Except for God. Now you either don't care about sin or you do care about sin. If you don't care about sin, God will kill you. But if you do care about sin, God will change you. That's what the gospel, that's what Christ's identity gives you. Is the hope, is the promise that God is working to get rid of sin in your life, to make you into a better person from the inside out. Without Christ, you have no hope. You will become the worst version of yourself. But in Christ, you have life. But what about all the bad stuff you've done? What about the people you've hurt? What about the mistakes you've made? So He offers us forgiveness. Your old life—you had a bill of debt. Bible uses very descriptive language here. Look in verse fourteen: having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. When you were born, created, you had a list of requirements. Obey God. Don't lie. Don't steal. Do what God wants. And you signed your name to it. One guy says, it read something like this I owe God obedience to his will. Signed, mankind. And that was a long list. And your name was at the top of it. And you didn't keep the list. And every time you failed, God wrote that sin down on that piece of paper, he wrote your name and he wrote every single thing you've ever done wrong. Every single one, even the ones you didn't know about, God knows. And he wrote them all down on a piece of paper, figuratively, and he kept it. And one day that has to be paid. You did the wrong, you have to pay for it. And God's got the bill. He doesn't forget He doesn't miscount this handwriting of requirements against us. And the more you know about this, the more it presses on you. The more you realize you cannot go back and undo them. You spent the money. You did the wrongs. It's recorded for all of time. Now what? Look what he says. Having forgiven you all your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. He didn't just say, don't worry about it anymore. We'll just put this in a drawer and not look at it. He did two things. He says, I'll pay the debt, but have you ever had somebody pay a debt and keep the bill? Just Keep it and say, just so you know, all this stuff here, I paid for all that. Just keep this as a reminder of all the things you couldn't do, but I did for you, and just sort of puts a line through them, paid. That's not what Christ does. He did pay for your sins. But then what does he do? He wiped out the handwriting. I remember when we got our first Microsoft Word processor. Some of you are like, that's always existed. So back in the 90s, so all of us, I think, have used Word, processor, but I remember the very moment that I first saw the option where you could click with the mouse and highlight a whole block of text. You ever done that? You just click, you just highlight the whole thing, the whole page, you do 100 pages. And then with one stroke, you delete it all. I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, wow, you don't have to go stroke by stroke, one, two, three, or if you're even older, you got some white out and you whited it out. But what did you see later? You saw the whiteout. What God did was he took all the sins that Christians had, and he highlighted them all, and he hit delete. And they ceased to exist. He didn't mark them out. He didn't put whiteout over them. He wiped out. He erased. The word wiped out means erased our debt and the record of our debt. How did he do it? He has wiped it out that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, think of what God is the figure he's he's presenting here. Remember when Jesus was crucified? Above his head was a bill, was a piece of paper that said, Jesus, king of the Jews. What Paul is saying is, no, actually, what was above him, what was on that cross was your name with all of your sins. That's what was nailed to the cross. And what is the purpose of a cross? See, we're 2,000 years removed from a cross. Here's the purpose of a cross, to mutilate and to destroy. You put people on a cross to mutilate them and destroy them. So when he says here, he has taken this bill with your name and all the stuff on it and nailed it to the cross, to what end? For what purpose? To mutilate and destroy it to erase it, to cause it to cease to exist. He didn't just take your sins out of the way. He took the list out of the way. What do you have to do to be in with God? There is no list. There's no requirements. It's not like, here's what you're supposed to do. No. That list was destroyed. Yes. Amen. Well then I don't have to do anything to get into heaven. Exactly. That's what he's saying here. He didn't just take your sins away. He took the list away. There is nothing in this world that you have to do to be in with God, to be part of this spiritual kingdom, to be one with Christ. Now, we forget that. We forget that God accepts us as we are. We like that part but then we don't accept other people like they are. When you stand against a repentant Christian, you stand against God. That Christian that you've got a problem with who's doing the wrong thing, you think? Jesus is standing next to them with his arm around them. And so when you stand against them, you're standing against Christ. Forgiveness is saying, if God's okay with them, I'm okay with them. If God can wipe out all their sins, so can I. We have a higher standard than God does. We expect more from Christians than God himself. We have set ourselves above Christ the Lord and said, to be a Christian, you must believe in Christ and, and these things. Will you undo what Christ did? Will you undermine the sacrifice? You see, when he says that that it was nailed to the cross, it was nailed with Jesus. He was mutilated and destroyed. He was killed so that you could get along with Christians. And so when you don't get along with Christians, you're saying, Jesus, that wasn't enough. You were not mutilated enough. You didn't die enough. Now I'll do the rest. I'll fix these people. I'll remove myself from these Christians because you didn't do enough. You see, what the cross does is it shows us that there is no list. There's no requirements. Christ did all the work. So we see that we're identified both in our body, saved, also our relationship with God, saved. But you know, there's something else out there. There are powers that you can't see that are pressing in on you. Now, the Colossians that this was written to, they, under- they believed in demons and spirits and angels, and they believe you need to worship those angels and be afraid of those demons because they're powerful and they're more powerful than humans. The Western world doesn't really like that kind of talk. It's still true. But even you know that there are things greater than you that control your life. Did you work for the government? Guess what can happen? Completely out of your control, the government can just shut down. Were you healthy? Next thing you know, you're not healthy. There are so many forces in this world that you can't see, that you can't control, that are working against you. Satan is one of them, but he has people working for him too. The very world itself is against you. You realize how small you are in this universe? How easily the universe could just snuff you out? The power of just the created world to end your life? That's what science teaches us. It doesn't free us from God. It just shows us how much more weak we are. They were just worried about Satan. Now we've got to worry about Ebola and Satan. All these forces against us. Perhaps you're a child and you can't control what your parents do and they control your life. That's a force outside of your control. What do you do about it? Look what the Bible says. He's taken them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. He didn't just come to save you. He came to protect you. He came to defend you. He came to undo Satan's power. See, in the old life, you're oppressed. You're at the mercy of the invisible. You're afraid of what could happen. Fate. You can't control it. It just happens. But look in the new covenant. Christ took on all of those things that you can't see or control, And did what? He beat them. He didn't just beat them. He disarmed them. They're not coming back. They don't have any weapons to fight with. F.F. Bruce, he pictures a scene. He says, imagine Christ when he was crucified. As he was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood, in apparent weakness... Satan and the demons imagined that they had him at their mercy and flung themselves on him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their attack without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of their armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. You're in Christ, that's you with Christ, holding Satan by his neck. See, when it says here he made a public spectacle of them, that's what the Roman Roman emperors did. They went, they conquered, they brought the king, and they put him on a wagon, and they rolled him in front of the whole crowd to make it very clear who was the victor. That's what Christ did. He didn't just beat Satan. He disarmed him. He stripped him of his power. He held them up on display and said, this is what you're afraid of? That's who we serve. That's what it means to be in Christ. All those things you're afraid of, you've created them. Because Christ defeated them. Christosom, who wrote in the third century, says, if thou go not down to Satan, he will not have power to come up where you are. For you are in heaven. And heaven is unapproachable by the devil. Amen. You know why you're afraid of things you can't control? Because you go to them and say, look how scary they are. Well, Christ is saying, look how great he is. Amen. We live by faith, not by sight. We see that Christ has disarmed every single thing that you're afraid of. He beat them. Yeah. Now, if you want to give power back to them of fear, you have to ignore what Christ did. Christ is the victor. And when you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Christ takes care of you. He only lets things into your life that are good for you. Only lets things into your life that are good for you. But let me warn you again, if you're not in Christ, you are at the mercy of Satan. Everything in this entire world is against you if you're not in Christ. Your body's against you, God's against you, and Satan's against you. And you have no help. So what's our response to this? If this is who Christ is, if this is who we are, what do we do with it? Look in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. The first thing you have to do is see that Christ did it all. What can you add to Jesus? So what does God require of you? Nothing. You simply say, I've got nothing to rely on except Jesus. I have nothing except Jesus. That's called faith. It's putting all your trust into Christ. That he died, that God raised him from the dead, and that he has done the same for you. An inward circumcision, an inward change. Your life looks the same, but you're different. The only way you get to be with Christ is by believing and trusting him. But that's the good news. You only have to believe. You only have to trust. And you get all of these victories and all these blessings that Christ won. But your life will look different if you do this. You see, the gospel doesn't just end with you believing in Jesus. The gospel changes us. Look what he says here. Buried with him in baptism. What is baptism? Does it save you? No, because that's your work. Baptism is you publicly saying, here's what Christ did for me. It's the initiation into the public kingdom, the public view of what Christ has done. You see, faith changes you. You believe what Jesus did, and he changes you on the inside, but no one can see that, can they? That inward faith, the inward regeneration, the inward spiritual kingdom, what's it look like on the outside? First thing it looks like is baptism. And what does baptism do? It's an outward sign, outward symbol of an inward change. You descend into the water, the grave, the chaos, the death that comes to everyone. You descend and are covered by it, just like Jesus was. But then what? You come back out. You're raised to walk in newness of life. You see, you don't have to go to the grave and be resurrected like Jesus was. You just symbolize it because he did it for us. So baptism is telling everyone, and is the church telling everyone, this person has been changed on the inside, and now you can see it. An outward sign of an inward change. True faith in Christ makes you look different on the outside. True faith means you will follow Christ. You don't simply say, well, I believe, now let me go back to my life. You don't have an old life anymore. If you believe in Christ, you have a new life. You can't go back to your old life. And if you go back to your old life, you never had faith in Christ. And so baptism is saying, I'm done with the old life. Now I have a new life. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, when you struggle with whether you are in Christ, remember your baptism. Think back to it. Think back to what that ceremony meant, what it symbolized. Let it remind you what Christ did for you on the inside. True faith follows publicly with Christ. Every single person in the Bible was baptized because it was natural to follow Christ on the outside after he changed you on the inside. It doesn't save you, it shows that you're saved. It shows the world that you identify with Christ. Christ identified with you. Christ took on everything you had, suffered and died for it. And now he asks us to identify with him. Do you want Christ or do you want the world? Krishna Powell, who was the first Indian convert, said, Jesus for thee a body takes, thy guilt assumes, thy fetters break, discharging all thy dreadful debt. And canst thou then such love forget? Look what Jesus did for you. How can you not follow him? How can you not love and trust and obey him? That's the call of the gospel. He's done everything for you. Now you believe him. Let's pray.